Moravec's paradox is named after one of its coiners, Hans Moravec, and it refers to the counterintuitive reality that, up till this point at least, things that seem easy to humans can be incredibly difficult and computationally expensive for artificial intelligences and robots, while many of the things we find taxing are relatively simple for our synthetic creations. So while AI software, especially in recent years, is just galloping across the expanse of human cognitive achievement and bettering us across everything thinking-related, ranging from memorization to math to playing games to negotiation, the same systems have trouble with casual language use, figuring out what a conversation or joke is about, and identifying stuff in photographs and videos, things that in many cases are both intelligible and easy for even a human child. Similarly, robots, and the distinction here is that AI is typically software at this point, while a robot is a physical thing that either we control or is controlled by some kind of software, Robots can haul heavy loads and hit a target with a projectile every single time, but walking, jumping, maintaining balance on precarious surfaces, these are all things that humans are great at doing, but which robots do not do terribly well. And when they approximate decent performance, it requires just a massive amount of work and processing on their part. One theory about why this is the case is that natural selection, the force behind evolution, which basically says that those entities that have survival-related advantages will tend to survive to procreate more, which over the course of generations will help those that survive become even better at survival, because the genes for those survival-related traits will tend to be passed on more than traits that do not allow their bearers to survive. The theory is that traits like the ability to casually balance on uneven ground and understand what a conversation is about, in terms of its subtext, are survival-related, because humans that were unable to successfully perambulate around all sorts of geographies would not have survived very long, and part of our species' power has resulted from our tribal affiliations, so those that were unable to follow societal happenings and consequently not work out terribly well as part of a pack of humans were likely nudged out in favor of those who could do this without even really thinking about it. So those who were unable to do it faced the world alone and did not survive as well as those who could function as part of a society. In contrast, capacities that can be brute-forced by artificial intelligences and robotics, like lifting heavy things and coming up with long lists of extraordinarily lengthy prime numbers, are comparably easy to accomplish with data-backed training. You feed these systems a bunch of data, write some software that allows them to see connections, and then over time refine the relevant software and hardware so that you can always score a bullseye with a dart or store long lists of complex information using ones and zeros. These two types of intelligence and physical traits, then, are different because we grow and evolve from different substrates and processes, and long-term evolution, and perhaps especially biological evolution, though that distinction might not matter much eventually, that may be more relevant to and favorable for some types of iterative development, and thus some types of tasks and behaviors, while synthetic development 
programming and such might someday overrun humans in these other capacities as well, but for the moment, the difference in how these tasks are accomplished would seem to provide some advantage to biological entities that have been honed over the course of millennia, little by little, even though artificial ones have overtaken us in a surprising number of fields essentially overnight. What I'd like to talk about today are the overlapping concerns of population, immigration, and automation. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from BBC News, and it's entitled Immigration Fuels Canada's Largest Population Growth of Over One Million. For the first time ever, Canada's population grew by over a million people in 2022, up from 38,516,138 to 39,566,248 people, just shy of 40 million people. A million new people in a country of not quite 40 million over the span of a single year is a huge increase, representing an annual growth rate of 2.7%, the country's largest since 1957. And this growth, though partially the consequence of new births, is not just the consequence of new births. Like the rest of the world, Canada has a population replacement rate of 2.1, which means in order to replace the number of people who leave or die each year, they need women to have 2.1 children on average. And that is not something they, or most other wealthy nations, have seen for a long while. As of 2020, Canada's fertility rate, the number of children that women have on average, was only 1.4. So without immigration, the country's population would be shrinking each year. And again, this is the same dynamic playing out around the world, the wealthy world in particular, at this moment. Many governments, perhaps especially those in Asia, like in South Korea and China, but not limited to governments in that region, have invested resources in trying to convince their people to have more kids. Some of these have been moderately effective, most have been at least a little bit cringeworthy, but none have proved to be a silver bullet for the issue of birth rate amplified population diminishment. And just to underline the answer to a question that's usually asked at this point when discussing population decline, although there are problems associated with higher populations, in general, the world we live in today, where the version of capitalism broadly practiced requires that people work to sustain global economies and workers to essentially pay it forward when it comes to social safety net programs, funding government coffers so those governments can afford to take care of the older members of their population as they become less integral to their economies. Because of that dynamic, seeing a population decline, especially year after year after year, is panic-inducing for those in charge. Because there's a good chance that at some point your system of government and your economy will no longer be sustainable if that decrease continues, and it will only get poorer and less capable over time because the economic engine that powers said government, which is sustained by a steady and ideally increasing stream of young employees, would be forced to rescale downward. Not enough people. Not enough hands, not enough brains to do the work required to keep things growing or to even sustain the previous level of economic productivity. Some nations, like Canada, rely heavily on immigration to fill that gap. 
to ensure there are enough people in country to do the jobs that would otherwise go unfilled, which in turn would lead to businesses shrinking or disappearing. In 2022, international migration accounted for almost 96% of the country's population growth, and that's the result of efforts made by Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau from 2015 onward to attract more people to the country, aiming to draw in and welcome half a million immigrants each year by 2025, including folks who have been negatively impacted by things like military conflicts and natural disasters, people fleeing Russia's invasion of Ukraine, for instance, or the recent devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, but also folks who have skills that are desirable and necessary to keep the Canadian economy ticking along at a decent clip. Notably, Canada's population would double in 26 years if they were able to maintain an annual growth rate of 2.7%, a growth rate that is impressive but relatively easy to accomplish today because of their low-ish population for a nation of their geographic and wealth-related size. But that would become an increasingly hefty effort in a decade or so as their population scales up, the number of immigrants they would need to attract increases in kind, and as a currently low-simmering competition to attract such immigrants starts to really take off, especially amongst wealthy, low-birth-rate nations. That type of competition, in the coming decade or so, is not guaranteed to happen, but it is expected in general because of those aforementioned downward-trending fertility rates. Few countries are hitting their necessary replacement rate with new births alone for a variety of cultural, societal, economic, and environmental-slash-health-related reasons. And that means if these governments want to keep things ticking along, as Canada clearly does, maintaining the strength and scale of their economies while also continuing to grow them, even as other economies attempt to do the same, that will mean pulling people in from other parts of the world where birth rates are still high, which is mostly in poorer parts of the world, at least right now. And for context, the nations with the highest fertility rates as of 2021 are, in this order, Niger, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mali, Chad, Angola, Burundi, and Nigeria. Wealthy nations need to attract folks from these nations and or pull people away from competing wealthy and wealthy-ish economies. At the moment, politics in many countries that are wealthy but not achieving their replacement rate birth numbers are focused on how to better reduce immigration figures, as the quantity of people who want to enter tend to be higher than the number of people influential groups within these countries are keen to allow in. This dynamic could flip in a relatively short period of time, though, as populations start to decline. Economies that are currently strong begin to look a bit more vulnerable to the vicissitudes of global competition, and the race to scoop up as many workers from international population hubs as possible really begins to take off. That population grab may be initially limited to educated, highly skilled employees, and there are currently government programs almost everywhere that are meant to bring people with medical training, high-tech knowledge, and other sorts of highly paid, highly desirable professional accolades into their population fold. But it could soon include low-skilled workers as well, as many of the jobs younger people tend to fill in any economy are the low-wage, blue-collar positions, like picking fruit and working at McDonald's, or maybe an intro position at a local steel mill. Again, lower birth rates equal fewer young people stepping into jobs that were previously occupied by a larger population 
of young people, which means these jobs will either need to be filled by folks from outside the country, or they will go away. There is a third option, of course, automation, which can mean buying a new machine that does the job a human being would previously have been required to do, taking orders at the McDonald's counter or drive through for instance, or maybe tightening a series of screws on a production line. But it can also mean driving buses and taking care of the elderly and programming new apps. The number of automation opportunities has been growing rapidly as the capabilities and sophistication of our artificial intelligences and robot technologies have increased. And that means the feasibility of filling more roles with robots and software is on an upswing, which in turn could change the math some governments are doing when they look at their population numbers and consider allowing more immigrants in. This can be a fraught topic as some nations, some cultures, are more likely to be inclusionary, while others are more likely to be exclusionary when it comes to people from other nations, other backgrounds, people with other religions and skin colors, and everything else. Japan, for instance, has been struggling with a decreasing population that is trending downward even faster than incomparable wealthy nations. And because of their historical aversion toward immigration in general, there hasn't been an obvious way to turn this downturn around. The country is expected to have a shortage of more than 11 million employees by 2040, and the working age population is expected to rapidly decrease from 2027 onward. Currently, its population decline is more of a broad-based, multi-demographic sort of thing, but from 2027 forward, the tide will be turning in a more dramatic economic fashion rather than just a people-focused fashion. So the population is already shrinking at a worrying pace, but their working age population in a country of 126 million people is expected to collapse by 20% over the next two decades, down from about 73.8 million in 2022 to 59.8 million people in 2040. Possibly also because of its history and culture though, Japan is currently leaning heavily on automation to fill many of these gaps. Japan is the world's top maker of industrial robots, delivering 45% of the total global supply as of 2022, and the country's exports have been booming. And that's despite the domestic market for such robots being so strong, the second largest in the world after only China, which has a far larger population and manufacturing industrial base than Japan. Speaking of China, though, 36% of Japan's huge quantity of industrial robot exports are shipped to China, which is another country that is looking down the barrel of a potentially staggering population decline. They tallied their first population drop in six decades earlier this year, and though they only lost about 850,000 people from their population of more than 1.4 billion in 2022, that was enough to give neighboring India the crown of most populous nation in the world and represented a potential first step in a long, shambling stumble down a descending population staircase. Some estimates suggest that China's population could decline by 109 million people by mid-century, which is more than triple their previous declination forecast, and they could be down to less than half of their current population by 2100 down to something like 587 million people, which to be clear, is still a huge number of people, but substantially less huge than today's 1.4 billion. 
And a drop like that would necessitate a complete rewiring of Chinese culture and the Chinese economy, the latter of which potentially could be handled using a lot of automation, though if they bring in more immigration, that will of course necessarily influence their culture in myriad ways as well, which is a big part of why some nations are so hesitant, even as their populations collapse and economies fumble, to bring in large number of immigrants from other countries. They worry the very nature of their country and culture and population will change if they import too many foreigners with all their foreign ideas and ways of doing things and looks all at once. Interestingly, while some projections, including one by the United Nations, still contend the global population will hit around 10.4 billion by the year 2100, which is down from their previous estimate of 11 billion, Another study commissioned by the Club of Rome, which is a nonprofit think tank that focuses on these sorts of issues, suggests we might increase a bit from our current 8 billion-ish people, but not by much. We will hit around 8.8 billion and then begin a period of global population decline. Through some lenses, this is a devastating world-ending prediction because, again, our economies today are reliant on ever-increasing numbers of people to work ever-increasing numbers of jobs. And going in the opposite direction means shrinking the overall amount of wealth and well-being in the world. From another perspective, though, this represents an increase in statistical well-being, as population growth tends to disappear in areas where people are healthy and wealthy and educated and often, but not always, free. So this is a prediction predicated in part on the belief that we will continue to pull people out of abject poverty and increase health outcomes and levels of freedom and education globally, which is a nice thought, though it doesn't do much to address the capitalism population dynamic that current setups are so heavily reliant upon. Automation might be part of the solution here, as we could theoretically produce just as much value in the shape of goods and services with fewer people if we have more robots and software to augment our efforts, less human effort invested for the same or more value-based outcomes. It could also be that we segue away from how we do things now toward some other means of managing scarce resources, though in the short term, it seems a lot more likely that we will see a combination of changing immigration policies blended with the deployment of AI and robots of all shapes and sizes to prop up the existing paradigm for as long as possible. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Like comment, subscribe, how YouTube drives Google's dominance and controls our culture by Mark Bergen. This book is a deeply researched account of the history of YouTube. And that history goes all the way back to YouTube before it was bought by Google. And then the many iterations and leadership teams and prime directives that it has had in the years since it was scooped up by the Google behemoth. This is interesting in part because it shows how much evolution there has been, but it's also interesting because of what a major player YouTube has been in the global economy, but also the role that it has played in some major headlines, major movements, major elections. And if you're trying to understand where YouTube and potentially even other video social sites like TikTok and Instagram Reels and such might go in the future, 
this is a good baseline of knowledge to start with because it shows how things evolve and change and where different sorts of intentions and values can lead over time. When a company like this is small, but then especially once it gets into the hands of a major company that has other people in the mix and other grander ambitions. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Like, Comment, Subscribe by Mark Bergen. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your podcasts or at onesentencenews.com. And please feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube, and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.